Okay, we're recording. <laughs> Hello, um, welcome to Film Roundtable. Uh, today's February 27th, 2021. We have a really great talk today about mentorship and how to inject some diversity into our business. Um, but before we start with that, we just wanna take our regular moment of silence to honor all of the 2,531,741 COVID deaths worldwide and the 523,111 US COVID deaths. We'd also like to take a moment to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters and all of our First Nations brothers and sisters who have been killed by uh, senseless police brutality and um, random acts of violence. So let's just take a moment here. Thank you for that. Um, so today we have a really special talk um, with Mish Setot and Ethan Tobin, who have started an organization called Hollywood Pipeline. Um, Mish is a, an educator and a lawyer who does a lot of work that centers and reflects around mentoring and mentorship. And Ethan is a very well-known production designer in the film business. He did the film, The Room. Um, he did Beautiful Boy. He's worked, he worked with Beyonce on Lemonade and um, Black is King. And so I welcome them both today to Film Roundtable. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So um, before we get started, I'm just gonna read um, from uh, the Hollywood Pipeline, a little description about what they're about before we get into um, these two gentlemen going further into um, what they're doing. So the Hollywood Pipeline is a radical network of young people from backgrounds of underrepresented from backgrounds underrepresented in the film industry and conscientious allies looking to connect with them to the insider information, jobs and training necessary to build a career and diversify the media landscape. Democratizing knowledge of how the industry works is crucial to the creation of more opportunities for those traditionally excluded. Talent talks are a vehicle for bridging that gap and sharing experiences. So this is the core um, philosophy behind Hollywood Pipeline. And yeah, I would like to just, you know, start getting deeper into how they began. So maybe we'll just start with Ethan and uh, how this transpired and how you connected with Mish and, and let's start with that. Yeah, I, um... Like a lot of production designers, you know, I, I, I was once told that the only person who employs more people on a film set than a producer is a production designer. It's the largest department of people 
there are more fragments between construction, scenic, set deck, props. And along the way, I, I noticed a very uncomfortable, unsettling reality to the business. I started in music videos. I started in hip hop in the 90s in New York. That's what was happening. Beyonce's first video was my first video. And all of those crews were black, were brown, were super diverse, were equally female and male, had, you know, trans and LGBT um, members of very high members of the hierarchy. And I started working in from that filmmaking and TV where all of a sudden the crews were male and white and looked nothing like the crews that I started filmmaking with. And I got frustrated. And I, like some of my other production designer friends, would try to hire more diverse crews and found there weren't many candidates that I could choose from or that I could enlist um, outside of production assistants or graphic designers. That seemed to be a place where there was a, there was more of a conduit for diversity. Um, so I, I, I was interested in speaking with kids um, who didn't really know what production design was because for me, the problem was never to mentor or enlist diverse candidates at a college level. It was to ex expose kids at a high school level, particularly at failing high schools where the majority of kids are not likely to graduate or, or where they, you know, they deem the, the high school as a, a failed institution to expose them to what I do for a living. Most of those kids, I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't know production design existed. I assumed that they shot what they shot at a place that was ready to go, that was film ready. Um, and I did that first by um, meeting uh, one of my best friends, Erica Sasson, who, who works at the Center for Court Innovation in New York, um, introduced me to a high school that I'll, I'll let me discuss in a moment, where I went to talk to their kids. And that's when I first met Misha, and that's where our story begins. And I think Misha, I'll turn it to you to talk about what the Center for Court Innovation was, what your involvement was, and 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 what our meeting ended up creating. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for having us and for giving us this platform to kind of talk about the really nitty gritty of how do you do the hard work of diversifying old institutions that were not built for diversity per se. Um, so to kind of get into the origin story, I met Ethan through my former um, boss, Erica Sasson, who started a pilot program um, with Department of Justice grant funding to pilot restorative justice in schools. And the idea was that we have these schools that we know are contributing a disproportionate number of future inmates to the criminal justice system. What happens if we implement a preventative strategy, a preventative measure at the school site, addressing the school to prison pipeline, as opposed to trying to wait until after they've been arrested and doing a juvenile diversion program. And so a lot of that job was like building the plane and flying it at the same time, because we were doing something that no one's ever done before. Um, we were the first grant of our kind and of our size to really try to tackle the issue of 
um, suspension rates in urban schools. We had tremendous success, but it was hard fought and hard won. And we were able to lower suspension rates astronomically as high as 90% in some of these schools, um, which has a direct correlation to future criminal justice involvement. But one of the things that we learned throughout this process was it wasn't enough to just prevent somebody from going to jail today. Because the reality was that the lives of our young people in the neighborhoods were structured in such a way that prison was the end point. It was either prison or low wage labor. There weren't a ton of opportunities for someone who didn't go to an Ivy League school who was black or someone who didn't have you know, the pedigree of a middle-class education to break into well-paid work. And so when Ethan came to the school and started talking about how, you know, working on a set is good money. You know, at, at a strictly purely economic level, it is enough money for you to take care of yourself and not be shackled to, you know, a retail job where your hours might fluctuate or something that's a little bit less certain. You would have, especially in a place like New York, consistent work, well-paid work, and to me, this part is important, meaningful work. You'd get to create. You weren't just, you know, in a factory or folding clothes in a mall, you were doing something that engaged you intellectually that you could be proud of and say, hey, look, I contributed to that. And so obviously, naturally, Ethan is incredible. And the children were like, this is so cool. We want more. Um, and so after he left that first time, I think it was 2018. I might be wrong about that. But after he um, left that day, I just had the flood of students constantly asking me, I want a mentor. I want, you know, to talk to Ethan again. I want a Hollywood um, entry point. And for a while, it was kind of hard to figure out what does this look like? How do we make this work? There's all these sort of regulations around connecting minors with adults and um, what does internships look like? But then I think last summer, um, witnessing, you know, the national uprisings that took place after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were senselessly murdered. Um, we recognized the urgency of the moment. And I think since then, our sort of philosophy has been the only way things are going to change is if good people do things immediately within their power. And you might not be able to shift labor laws. You might not be able to hire an entire department, but you and in your individual capacity have some form of power that is able to be then used and leveraged to help the next person come up. And so that was sort of our motivation. We were just like, let's just see what we can do to help young people immediately. Not wait for you know the Academy of Motion Pictures to decide that they're gonna put money into it. Not wait for an institution to say, oh, you know, you guys have a good idea, let's fund it. We're just gonna run with it. Ethan literally bankrolled the whole first semester um, <laughs> because we had no other options. There was no real funding source or really orga organizational support. Uh, we tried to make it work originally within the mission of the Center for Port Innovation, but they're pretty focused on, um, and rightfully so, criminal justice reform. And so this is a little bit out of their wheelhouse. And so for the last few months, it's really been us just kind of thinking about and making it work. And I approach this work as someone who really has had the benefit of crossing the lines of race and class since childhood. I grew up in the suburbs of Miami, but all of our family, our you know, ties were in the inner city. And so I just was always going back and forth. 
And so even when I moved to New York, I was working in these quote unquote failing schools, but I was attending an Ivy League school for my master's degree. And so I was just constantly juxtaposed between the realities of America. And I feel like my role in this is really just a bridge to bridge young people who I know are hardworking, who've got the gumption, who don't have the opportunity with people like Ethan who have opportunities, but don't necessarily have the connections to individual young people at a high school level. So how do we build those connections? How do we build those bridges? And that's where the word radical comes from. It's really getting to the root of it, which is connecting people who are normally not connected in our society. Well said, Mish, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Just talk, just hearing you talk that way, it makes me realize how fortuitous that one meeting was. I mean, we walked yeah. into school that day. I didn't know you <laughs> and you've become such an intimate part of my life and this mission. What we started doing, Aaron, what the whole point of what we were doing is I couldn't find an organization that targeted high school kids, particularly high school kids who hadn't shown exceptional uh, interest in or self-motivation in their own art projects. Mm. We aren't looking to christen the football star. You know, mm. we're looking to expose kids who no one else looks to and no one else looks for. And that's not fair. And that's where we always, I think, Mish and I met eye to eye immediately. And we can talk about this as we go into like what we're learning and the obstacles we're finding because I do not pretend to be an expert. I, I'm really, really still learning every day and making mistakes every day in trying to start an initiative and affect social change. But one thing I did immediately recognize was no one else seemed to want us to target high school kids. Whenever we spoke to similar nonprofits, whenever we spoke to, um, you know, parallel initiatives, some government funded, because remember, we're doing this all on our own. There's no corporate sponsorship at this point yet. We wanted to do a beta semester. We wanted to see, can we make this work? Are we affecting positive change? Is it worth it? Mm -hmm. um, the answer was immediately resoundingly yes, but we were doing this at like from midnight to three in the morning after a 14 hour shoot day in a COVID world, we're figuring out who our next speaker will be and, 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 and how to engage more attendees. Um, and the number one thing that we first realized was um, some of these kids may end up not wanting to be filmmakers. Some of these kids walk in at 14, 15 years of age thinking they want to be a costume designer and within a week or two, now they want to be an editor. And what's unique about our initiative is we're making space for that to be okay because that's the process. We're not results driven. We're not trying to graduate you with a short film. We're trying to expose people who have no conduit to these types of careers to the prospect of being able to pursue them. And then you can change your mind. You can focus on something else. You can come back to it two years later. But I was privileged enough as a white, Jewish, well-educated private school kid in Montreal, Canada, to know about the filmmaking process from a pretty young age. So I had the time to consider, is this something I want to pursue? And by the time I was 18, I was going to film school because of that. 
So that's sort of what makes our approach unique. And I can talk to you, we can both talk to you a lot about how we failed and what we're learning and the obstacles we're coming <laughs> up against, but that's what makes, that's, that's our approach. And I don't know enough organizations that are similarly targeting this demographic. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think what I would love for you guys to do is walk through the beta, the first beta program that you did this first one uh, and how it went and then talk a little bit about what you learned from it, you know, and, and I know we've spoken about this before, but like what you learned, how you do it again, because I think one of the big problems in, I, in, in, in the talk of mentorship intern programs, thing like things like this, is people don't necessarily understand the scaffolding that go along with it, which is why lots of times when people are like, I'm having a mentor or a mentee or an intern on my next movie and the studio is going to pay for it and da 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 da, da. Um, And then the studio can't pay for it. And then you just end up with another wealthy kid who can afford not to work, you know, can get themselves to and from where they're going, don't have other responsibilities at home. So I think that, I think it's important to talk about that. So I'd love to hear what this beta round was like, and then the things you've learned and how you're going to adjust for mm-hmm. the next, because it is such a big undertaking of what you're doing. I mean, just, just systemic. I mean, when you start to get into the, the nitty the, the nitty gritty of systemic racism, or even when you just start to take a moment and meditate on what that is, and you realize it's in every aspect of our lives, like every mm-hmm. single aspect of our lives, it exists. It becomes slightly overwhelming, right? Because you're like, where do I start to chip away at this? And and I think that what you guys are doing is really amazing, but also important to maybe keep track of the fact that we have to keep things like this a little bit small because um, it's hard to take on the world, right? And I've always, when I was a kid, remember seeing this bumper sticker, like when I was in high school, that was uh, think globally, act locally. And that Mm. bumper sticker has always stayed with me that it just, even if we're helping one or two people, we are chipping away at, the bigger picture, you know? And I think people in our business, over overachievers, you know, uh, highly educated people, we always wanna take on like, you know, everything. Like we've gotta do this, we've gotta change the world. And you know, these things are gonna take generations to shift. I think they're shifting slowly, but you know, we're not gonna see the full change in our lifetime. Hopefully our grandkids will and their kids. But, and I think it's important to think about that, especially people, who are watching this or listening to this and want to take on mentorship, want to do something similar, but but so it would be great to hear your exam, like your your trial and what and how you want to see it moving forward. I guess. Mish, I'm, I'm Mish, I'm laughing. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how my early talks with Amy when we were starting, where I was like, yeah. oh, I had seventeen kids. Yeah. I don't want fifty kids, and Amy was like, you got seventeen kids. <laughs> In a pandemic. Low down type A filmmaker, you know, yeah. like remember Amy was like one kid is a success. And I was like yeah. bummed we only had 17. <laughs> yeah. 
I, you know, I was, I was going to interject, but I was like, oh, it's a podcast, so it might not pick up. I was going to say, like, Aaron, why are you calling me out now? <laughs> when you were talking about type A, want the whole thing to change immediately, I 100% empathize with that impulse. Because I think, like you're saying, when you see these systemic injustices, you want to fix it now. You want to fix it yesterday. And so when you realize that, wow, I can only chew this much mm-hmm. at one time, it can feel a bit demoralizing, you know? Mm-hmm. It can feel a bit like, oh, well, this is not the scale that I thought it was gonna be. But um, just to clarify, I heard three questions actually in what you just said. One was, how did the beta semester go? Two was, what have we been doing kind of since then? And then three is, what's the future like? Mm-hmm. And so I, mm-hmm. I don't know, Ethan, do you wanna tackle one, two, yeah, or well, three? I- or? I want to kind of, talk about, because Mish, you're, because you work in this field and have more experience with the nuances of social justice and reform, I, I want to say a couple things just first that I think listeners to this will empathize with and that taught me just how uneducated and privileged I am in my experience. Two examples. When we first started doing this, none of the kids wanted to share their screens. And I got really thrown by that. I'm giving a circle talk, we call it, sorry, a talent talk, where I'm trying to excite them. And I'm, you know, a performer who's looking for the audience to react, to give me energy, and they're all turning their cameras off. And I, I didn't get it. And it, I literally had to be explained to me by Mish that some of these kids are in unstable homes where they are embarrassed by what's happening behind them. They may have parents who are drug users. One of our kids I later found out was camming from a McDonald's bathroom. Um, Some of our kids are transitioning. They're not sure what pronoun to use. that really changed things for me. You know, j- just seeing their name at, from moving forward once I realized that, it was, I was so grateful for their participation because something as simple as signing on to a Zoom, for some of these kids, they have unstable internet, they have unstable resources. It's something that a white privileged person such as myself doesn't even consider. And can I just add one thing? Yeah. It might even that it might even be that their parents are great and they're too, but they live in a small house with the yes. couple brothers and sisters and there's no privacy. You know, I think that's yes. also a big thing. Like I just yeah, I think that's also important to remember that so many people who have really beautiful family lives are are just also having a hard time in COVID because they don't have the space, right? And we're Absolutely. very privileged that we have you know, space to be alone and and do what we need to do. So I think that's important also. Um, So that was number one. And then the second thing, and then I'll turn it to Mish to talk, like these are the more granular things and Mish can talk about the more global things. But the second one that I learned a lot about was Mish and Erica said to me very early on, if you want these kids to participate, you need to pay them. And my immediate reaction, very very fast, you know, synaptic reaction was, what? That's crazy. This is a nonprofit. We're not corporate sponsored. I'm offering my time. That was such a white privileged reaction. 
to this. These kids need food. If these kids are coming to show up for us for an hour, it means they're not doing something else that might be contributing to their family's well-being. So I started paying them. Um, and now I, you know, we gave them a stipend for every time that they showed up. And now I've adjusted, you know, one of the things I learned was it, you need to provide financial support and incentive in order to run a program for underprivileged or underrepresented people. That's not a, that's, that's not a debate. They need support financially right now. And whatever we're doing as a conduit to this industry is to provide them with paid work as fast as possible. That's the goal. So that was a big shift for me, you know, coming from let's just talk creatively and expose you to yeah. some of the process. No, I want to get you some food in your mouth today. So that, that those were two things that I really learned immediately. And Mish, I turn it to you because you know, if those are the granular things I learned, I think you really were confronted with some more global ones as the semester went on. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that there's always a connection between, you know, the local and the global, kind of like the bumper sticker you were talking about. Um, so I think the first thing is relationships and how important those are and how um, a lot of mentorship programs, like you were saying, just don't provide the scaffolds for relationships. They don't provide the scaffolds to talk to this person who genuinely wants to get to know you, but feels like an alien because they grew up in Minnesota and a middle-class background. And now they're a fancy Hollywood filmmaker. And they're like, well, there's no way this kid from Brooklyn wants to hear about my life. But in reality, they do. And if you get past some of the big structural differences. And I'm not saying to ignore them. I'm just saying that they exist in tandem with a lot of individual personal similarities. And so it might not be that you can relate on the case of hometown or what your parents did, but you might relate to being an older sibling. You might relate to being a Leo or a different kind of zodiac sign or just your interest in zodiac signs. And so I think sometimes, and this is a big, sort of global lesson is we get so hung up on differences that we neglect to really mind for similarities. And once you start with the commonalities, once you start with the, you know, I was a nerdy kid in high school and I was an introvert, then somebody else can relate to that. You don't have to be rich or poor to be an introvert. Um, you don't have to be black or white to be um, somebody who has always been a natural performer. And those personality types, they exist across race, across socioeconomic status, across gender, across sexual orientation, ability, et cetera. Um, and so I think that the big thing that we learned in the beginning was kind of finding ways to establish commonalities between filmmakers and mentees, mentors, mentees. Um, and so that doesn't always look like a direct linear sort of approach to building relationships. It's not just, oh, tell me about the projects you worked on. It's also like, Tell me what you like to eat for breakfast. Um, tell me, you know, uh, a time where you felt super embarrassed. Tell me about what it was like when you were young and broke and trying to make it in the industry. That's something that we always kind of start with when we do talent talks because from feedback from mentees is they're like, I see myself in that. 
I see myself in that person who really just wants to make it as hungry, has drive, but doesn't see where the opportunity is coming from. This person who previously I assumed was born Beyonce actually at one point was a climber and striving. And I'm a climber and I'm striving and I can now identify with them in ways that I previously didn't even consider. And so um, Ethan tells this story in his talent talk about being a cater waiter. I don't know if that's a pejorative, so I apologize. Um, but about being a cater waiter and like having almost no money left and hearing these guys talk about the necessity for a job and saying, you know, I might lose my job for this, but hey, I can do it. And I have young people who have worked in really fancy restaurants as busboys, as servers. Yeah. Um, and they never really thought about the fact that someone who does what Ethan does at one point could have been a server. And so yeah, now I they're hearing that. <laughs> I, I got my first job because they were talking about how they, the person in the art department couldn't draw. And I, I, and I, if you talk to the staff, I was a waiter. And if you talk to the clients, you're instantly fired, they said. So I told them, I'm going to be fired for saying this, but I can draw. And I went to film school and I'd really, really love a job tomorrow. And they, um, and they said, you can start for free. And I did. And within a week I was getting paid and I was fired and it worked out. I tell wow. that story all the time. Yeah. And but, so uh, no one starts, well, except if you're Ethan, no one starts producing videos for Beyonce. Um, everyone kind of starts at some point. And so those stories and talking with Rachel Morrison about jobs that she had to take yeah. that weren't high art, that weren't the kinds of things that she was interested in, but that she needed the money to do, really, I think, helps to get young people to see their futures as attainable and to see that it's not as inaccessible as it seems. These are real people who are doing this. It's hard, you know, the competition is fierce, but it's possible. And so starting with that kind of like lesson, I think was a really big thing and just really humanizing our talent and making sure that the young people were hearing about the struggle, were hearing about their first jobs, were hearing about common pitfalls, mistakes that they made on the job um, was really important. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that was really important was creating a structure that made it easy to dip your toe in. Um, going back to what Ethan said, I know a lot of our mentees personally, some of them I know only through referrals, but a lot of them were young people who were orphans, for example, um, who lived in foster care, who I know personally, um, their home lives were challenging. That doesn't mean that they're not hard workers. That doesn't mean that there's not a ton of love in the house. It's just the kinds of struggles for um, daily needs are not assumed in more privileged white environments. And I always go back to Maslow's hierarchy because whenever I have conversations with white people, they tend to start around like self-actualization and they forget that before you can self-actualize and find your purpose and get to know your true spirit, you have to have shelter, you have to have food, you have to have bodily autonomy over your pronouns and your hormones. You know, there are all these steps that if you are born on third base, you might not even realize that somebody had to hit the ball, somebody had to get to first base, somebody had to get to second base before you can get to where you are. Um, and so we actually had a conversation with a production company that was looking to hire some of our mentees. Mm. And they were talking about how, you know, in the past people have struggled to get to work on time. And it's like, well, 
if your production studio is in a nice neighborhood and you're hiring people who live in the hood, then that means it's going to take them a long time to get to you. And you're also assuming that they have train fare. And you're also assuming that, you know, there's bus routes that connect. And so, whereas if you're hiring an intern from a wealthy, let's just say Tish to pick on Ethan a little bit. If you're hiring an intern from Tish who lives in a dorm room in the downtown, it's very easy to get to Midtown. It's very easy to get to Astoria. But if you live, for example, in the neighborhood that I used to teach in, Canarsie, it's an hour just to get to Union Square. You know what I mean? And so from just to get to the city, it's taking you an hour. Then from the city to get to the specific neighborhood or the specific building, there's all these layers of complexity that folks are not anticipating. And so what you're seeing as poor job performance, tardiness might actually be a structural barrier. And if you're not intentional about those structural barriers, you're gonna find yourself replicating the same sort of dynamics that lead to rich white people getting all the opportunities because it's easier for them to access. One of the things that at some point we'll transition to this in this conversation naturally, but I, I want to tell you and, the, and our listeners about what we actually did structurally, like what it looked like week per week. But I think it's really important that on the heels of that, we talk about the, the obstacles we're now facing and what we're learning as we are being flooded by interest by production companies. And we're learning that we have a responsibility not to set mm-hmm. these kids up for failure. Um, and with the over eagerness and the corporate climate right now of interest in hiring diversity, I, I mean, for, here's a perfect example. There was one production company, I won't mention their name, but they said an example of something that, you know, our PA might need to do is set up a green room for an actress and buy a you know really expensive candle and really nice flowers that will make her feel really special. And Misha and I are looking at each other like, you're you're gonna take it's it's now our responsibility to hire someone from a community and throw them to Bloomingdale's to buy the perfect brand of candle. We're gonna set them up for failure. They're gonna feel like they've done something wrong. The production company's gonna be unhappy with their results. We're not moving the dial or 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 helping the situation in any way in that respect. So we'll get into that at some point, I'm sure in this conversation, but the expectations of certain socioeconomic standards are very nuanced and tricky when you're trying to bridge the gap between two really disparate worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of goes back to the whole piece that we have around democratizing knowledge, because one of the most powerful things somebody in power can do is explain the playbook to somebody who's excluded from that. And that was something that I learned in my personal life, just going to school with kids who were incredibly wealthy and hearing sort of like the unofficial rules of how you maneuver yourself in these spaces. And then also going to spaces where the rules of engagement were 100% different. For example, in Canarsie, if you disagree with somebody, confrontation is direct, it's immediate, and it's substantiated. Meaning like we disagree and we're gonna directly address this. At Columbia, if you disagree with someone, you have to dress it up in the nicest language and you have to put it in like a boutique window. And then you have to say, huh, I'm inviting you all to my party. 
on the Upper West Side, please look at the invitation for the person to get the idea that you didn't like what they did. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm coming from, and here's a good example that um, Amy, one of our advisors uh, gave, uh, she started an, a program with Center for Court Innovation called Neighbors in Action. And uh, she talks about that she hired a, a young person from the community to answer the phone. And their whole thing was they're problem solvers. And so this young person would answer the phone and say, what's your problem? <laughs> it, there's nothing on paper that you can say that is wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, if a funder calls and the first thing they hear is, what's your problem? It doesn't ring the same way as, hi, welcome to Neighbors in Action. We're a community service organization that's here to solve your problems. How can we assist you? <laughs> you know, you have to teach people the language of power. You mm -hmm. have to give people insight into the playbook and to what these words and terms mean. And so something, I'm not saying you can't get your PA to go buy the candle and the flowers, but tell them what candle you want them to mm -hmm. buy and what flowers you want them to buy. Don't assume that everyone knows that, you know, soy candles are all the rage and anyone who's doing wax is just like passe. Don't or, assume or that- another one, another one with my guys, we always want options. They're terrified to overspend money. Yes. So we, we want five different options of candles. We, we, our currency is options. And they're coming from a socioeconomic background of, I don't want to waste anything and frankly, we're in an industry of tremendous waste. So I see that happening a lot where I, you know, I've been learning to explain to them, you can return things. It's okay to spend too much money on this. There's a lot of shame and apprehension that comes with financial transactions for some of people who are new to this community of filmmaking. And it, it, it's, it's, it, you see it play out in ways that if you come from a privileged, rarefied background, you'd never consider. Right. Absolutely. And I do want to highlight that the, you don't know what you don't know cuts both ways, right? Like a lot of filmmakers don't know a lot of incredible things that I've learned from the young people directly that I've worked with. And so one of the things that we built into our model to go kind of back to the programmatic model is this idea that the young people hold incredible wisdom. And your job as a mentor is to solicit that wisdom mm. and it'll benefit you. It'll make you a better storyteller. It'll make you a better filmmaker when you understand reality more comprehensively. Life mirrors art, art mirrors life. But if life is only the Upper West Side and you don't realize that people live in Harlem and the Bronx and, and all these other places, you're gonna have a very narrow vision of what art is and what life is. And so, really understanding that both people are coming to this with misconceptions, with apprehensions, with not wanting to get it wrong, and then creating a kiddie pool where it's like, you can put your toe in there. We're not gonna bite. You can tell us you know, your embarrassing story about what you were terrified of as a child. It is okay. And you might actually find that this guy who's won an Academy Award was terrified of the same thing that you were terrified of. Right. And now you guys have this point of connection. And so I really do think that anyone who's looking to go into this space has to really prioritize and understand that we are all learning from each other. That knowledge is not a one-way path. That experience is not a one-way path. Yes, you might be in a position of power, but that doesn't mean that you absolutely have nothing to learn from these young people who have some of the richest insights into how the world works. Mm -hmm. 
And, and it sounds like it's just really important that that base is a safe space for, for both sides, right? For your mentors and your mentees to both feel like they can be, they're in a safe place to be vulnerable and share what, you know, to learn, to share, to take things in. Um, so, you know, you guys creating that kind of environment is, is, is really important. I mean, it's, it's integral. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a learning process for us. Like, so the, structurally, what we actually did was um, it took us two months to to grow the confidence to do it. We were super apprehensive at first, Mish. If you remember, we had so many. Yes. Do like, we just do it? And then we just. Yeah. Um, and you know, Mish Mish was confident he could provide the mentees. I was confident I could provide the mentors, and we just started with group zooms. They lasted about an hour. They started uh, 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 appropriately awkwardly. Um, <laughs> Mish really smartly would do break the ice exercises where we talked about something completely non-film related. One of my favorite ones was when we all talked about what our favorite meal was because that reveals a tremendous amount about our cultural backgrounds um, and our personalities. Um, and some of the answers were so so disparate um mm -hmm. and so in keeping with the face you know uh, on the screen and some of them weren't um what our greatest fears were what our what our most recent nightmare was what we were grateful for then we would launch into um what is it that you're most interested in doing creatively in film or what do you do creatively in film and mm -hmm. then as the talks went on in the weeks that followed we started pairing people up into smaller chat rooms with targeted mentor mentee um, connections that we thought would, you know, yield best results or, or, or that had common interests and relationships really thankfully started forming outside of the circle talks. So they started I, emailing each other. Can I ask a quick question? So how many, yeah. how many people came to the first circle or the first talk? Ooh. I wish I would have kept the track of the attendance. Uh, I, I don't know remember, if you know. Though. I remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I was going to say that proved the most challenging was consistency. Right. Um, it was completely unpredictable. So our first one, we had 23 mentors and we had 16 mentees. Wow. Next week, we had nine mentees and something like 26 mentors. Wow. It got really stressful for us because mm -hmm. I would feel like, are we failing because I'm asking professionals to show up and not providing them with enough mentees? And that was, again, part of the learning process of one kid is enough. And this isn't about making the mentors, the filmmakers feel <laughs> like their time is valuable. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Mish can speak to this, but when we started issuing stipends as financial support for their participation, um, but also once we just got into a groove with COVID schooling in the New York yeah. area with Cuomo changing the yes. mandate, it really was hard for us to be consistent in a world and a moment where childcare, schooling, um, and health and safety was was running amok every week in a different direction. So, yeah. in the future, 
in a non-COVID world, you know, it's going to look pretty different. But these Zoom meetings, they were great because people from all over the world were able to get together. And they were terrible because you never knew who was going to show up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to back up a little bit, I think it's important to give folks an idea of what the actual programmatic structure on the Zoom is. So we would, it, it was based on the model of restorative justice circle. And I think that that piece kind of goes to what you were saying, Aaron, around safe spaces, because what restorative justice circles are is one, they're ancestral. You know, this is not something that I made up. It's not something that my boss made up. This is how human beings gathered and decided on how to solve problems within their communities long before the existence of a criminal justice system, long before the existence of even agriculture. This goes back to our hunter-gatherer days. So we as humans, biologically adapted to be in small groups and to have stylistic patterns. And it happened all across the globe in different pockets. So we based our model off the Navajo peace circle tradition. They have them in New Zealand, they have them in Canada. There, there's all different types of versions, but they all kind of have a similar idea, which is a circle, um, a talking piece, a circle keeper, who their job is actually to minimize themselves as much as possible and to not speak and to just ask the question and let the question go around and not interrupt um, and communal norms. And so one of our communal norms besides, you know, logistical things of like confidentiality and, um, you know, one mic, uh, one of our communal norms was to try and trying looks different for everybody. And so just starting the conversations off with a sort of ground rules of this is the rules of engagement, this is how we're gonna engage in this space, really lends itself to building a momentum. But it doesn't solve the problem that Ethan just pointed to of consistency with mentees. And a lot of that is just a mirror of what's happening. It's a microcosm of what's happening societally. So we have you know one week, 16 people, then the next week I'm getting emails, my grandma has COVID, I have a funeral, I just had a baby. Like, and it's like, oh, well, life is happening you know what i mean um what can we do sort of to get young people to come every week and one of the things that we came into was that well my work schedule is not in my control i work you know retail and i get assigned hours and so one of the things that i told them was like okay well is it possible for you to like not work these hours and they're like well not if i want to eat and so if i'm asking you to give up this hour I have to give you something in the immediacy because your needs are immediate. Like, yes, you want a career 10 years from now, but you also want to eat today. And for people who don't have to worry about where they're going to get food today, it often can be a second thought. And so um, I think structurally, a lot of the shifts and evolution happened when we recognized that our young people had immediate needs that could be solved with an immediate cash transfusion. And when that happened, we saw not only our mentee numbers stabilized, but they started to grow. And by the end, I think we were like almost at parity with mentors. It's something like 20 um, young people coming from, you know, nine in early September. And I'm like, ah, the sky is falling. <laughs> What's happening? And, you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier where I wanted a hundred, you know, Ethan wanted a hundred. And so the fact that we didn't get a hundred immediately, I was like, well, <laughs> well, maybe this doesn't work. Um, <laughs> I know it's true. We were so ready to, we weren't ready to give up. We were never going to give up, but no. we were so down on ourselves at first. Um, and I, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you today, Aaron, and, and, and have been so excited about 
putting this out there is we need more help. Mm. We need more participation and we need help, especially from, frankly, um, Black, Latinx, trans. Um, we need successful filmmakers of all disciplines, of all positions on crews to participate in our next semester because sometimes I'm, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for everyone who participates, but sometimes it is a bunch of white people talking to a bunch of black and brown people and that's great and, I, and that's progress, but we've, we see how different it is when a young kid sees someone they can visually and culturally identify with as someone who has found success. Um, and, totally. you know, I, 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 yeah, and I can't say this enough, like, I, I, I cannot say enough as I speak that I don't mean to sound like an expert in this. I am in first grade here. I'm just learning the right words. I'm making lots of mistakes. I'm reading all the right books, which are teaching me that I'm hundreds of years behind having <laughs> any authority on the subject. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, I say all of this with great humility, but you know, we're trying. And that's, I think, I, I don't know about you, Mish, but that's the number one thing I learned was just keep trying, just keep trying. It, you aren't doing bad if you're learning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, two things. The first thing is, um, to your point, Ethan, we need windows and mirrors, right? Every house needs windows. You need to see that, wow, there's something else. But you also need mirrors. And it works best when you have windows and mirrors together. Mm -hmm. And so we need people who mirror our young people's realities. And we need people whose lives are super different, who are from Poland and moved to LA and, you know, have completely different life trajectories um, because they show what's possible. But mirrors also work in that same way. So I think um, to double down on that, we need windows, we need mirrors, we need more um, encouragement and participation from the artistic community. We need more mentees. We want to grow. Um, and then the second piece was really just understanding that no one has it figured out. And if you are immobilized by a fear of failure of getting it wrong, then you are contributing to the problem mm -hmm. because you have resources, you have opportunities and you're not sharing them because you don't wanna do it wrong. Mm -hmm. Obviously we don't want all of our learning to be on the backs of the most marginalized. And so you should absolutely seek counsel and advice and go about it in a serious systematic fashion. But I just hear a lot of trepidation of, fear mm -hmm. of getting it wrong, of saying the wrong thing, that then means, well, let's just leave things as they are. So Even though the status quo is unsustainable, I just don't wanna be the person who does it wrong. So let's just leave it. Mm. So who, who are you hearing that from? Are you hearing it from like the mentee side or the production company side, or are you hearing? Well, my comment was more global in nature. Okay. It's something mm -hmm. that I've seen in white communities my whole life, oh, just in conversation yeah. with them. I have been sort of navigating this space of in and out both sides forever. Yeah. And the number one thing I hear from black people is we want opportunities. And the number one thing I hear from white people is we don't want to fuck up. Right. Uh, pardon my French. And, yeah, and, and I think you also hear what I've heard from a lot of white people 
it, especially in the last, you know, six or seven, eight months is that, you know, how do we do this? There's not a lot of people at these, you know, black or brown people at these high levels who I can hire to be my CFO or hire to be my head designer or, you know, whatever, whatever the, we need more, we need more black people on our roster. You know, like that was a big one over the summer with production Mm -hmm. companies was like, like they just woke up like, oh my God, there's only 0.2% of people of color uh, that work in the film business that are directors and DPs and whatnot. Well, we need to change that. And by next month, we're going to be at 20%. And people weren't like, didn't really dawn on them that there is, there isn't, there isn't the, the, um, the stream of people moving up the ladder to get there because Uh these people have not had the opportunities at the get-go. So I think that's a big thing. And I think that's where you get a lot of white people who are like, well, you know, I can't really hire someone to do this job because there aren't any people of color to do this job. And and I think that's a bit of a fear-driven response, right? Because you have people who are who have the power, who have the ability to make change, but they don't want to do the work at the bottom to make, to create space to make that change. Like, okay, let's start a program then where we're going to pay for interns to come in and one is going to intern with two of our directors. One's going to intern with one of our EPs. The other's going to intern with our house coordinator, you know, and, and those are the things that need to happen and people need to invest on those levels. Um, and it's all absolutely, but. And I, I, I want to push back on that assertion, not what you said, but just, it's so prevalent and I hear it all the time and you hear it across industries. It's not just filmmakers, tech companies are like, we can't find black talent. I have a younger brother who's black, a software engineer, just graduated, can't find a job. Why? Because what they're looking for is structurally unavailable to him, right? You cannot be a young black person who just graduated from college with four years of work experience. Right. Someone has to take the risk. You know what I mean? And so that goes back to this, what you said, it's, it's a fear-driven response. They don't want to hire someone and mess it up, or they don't want to extend this opportunity and it not work out not realizing that there are so many other people who are not black, who are not women, who are not trans that get opportunities and mess it up. And that's part of it. And you, you, know, know, what, you know what I would add to that, Mish? Just like, cause I, for me, like it's granular, right? Like I always defer to you on the global because that's, mm-hmm. that's really your area of expertise and you're studying law. And like, I feel like I'm in the trenches every day, you know, in the salt mines with like, I need to hire a PA right now. And you know what? Since we started this initiative six months ago, I haven't done a single job, music, video, commercial, TV, where I wasn't able to hire two people from an underrepresented community or culture. It's just about willful intent. It's not as hard as you think it is. It takes a few extra phone calls. It takes a few extra hours. I've probably done 20 or 15 jobs in the last six months. I have not done one without at least two key members of a community that I didn't see on my film sets before. So it's not like I know what the answer is, but I think one of the great things that happened this summer is there were Google groups created to gain awareness of and where people self-identified as being from different cultures and different backgrounds so that you could access them if you wanted to. Um, but also through 
organizations that we started researching like artworks or streetlights or um, uh, Alliance for Media and Culture who we're speaking to now and, and who I'd like to talk about at some point during this podcast because they may represent our future. Um, we were, as production designers, we get to hire lots and lots of people. And it's one of the departments where I think we can see and affect change faster than say my assistant director friends who are frustrated because they're limited by the DGA or they only get to hire two people and they see me hiring you know, six or seven people and I do get to affect change. So where you can in the business, visual effects, um, mm -hmm. art department, early on in prep in production, those are places where the obstacles of things like unions and nepotism can be um, uh, fought, can be changed. Absolutely. Um, and one other thing that I'll say is, I think a lot of times folks think that white supremacy is upheld by situations like what we saw happen on January 6th at the Capitol. And I'm not saying that that's not white supremacy. You'd be a fool to ignore that. Um, but what I am saying is that if white supremacy were just the KKK and the Proud Boys and people who are overtly shouting that they hate Jews and Blacks and Asians, then we would have vanquished it a long time ago. You know, there's the, the number of outrageous, wretched, overtly so racist people is not nearly as high as the number of white people who have opportunities and don't intentionally find ways to diversify who they give them to. And so if you have an opportunity and you're not racking your brain to figure out how am I going to get these people, that's right. then you're just upholding the system. Hey, you're part of the and problem. So, and so it's not always, you know, start a foundation or do something else. It's literally like, you know, I am looking for a tutor for my kid. I want to make sure that my kid's tutor is not another white person. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look for someone who's not. And when you look, you will find there are groups, there's all these different initiatives. There are people in this space who are doing this work. And there are people who have graduated from film schools that are looking for jobs. You have to be intentional about looking and it might not come as easy as, you know, your cousin's nephew or your best friend's fiance's daughter, but they're there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of work that <clears throat> that white people can be doing, you know, and it, a lot of it's laziness, you know. It's just like, oh, that didn't. I didn't think about that before. I uh, thinking about it is just going to cause extra work. I was better off when I was a little blind and dumb, you you know, uh, desensitized about it all, and you know. And I think that those are sort of the conversations that are happening right now. It's, you know, you either are as, as white folks or conscious white folks, you know, you're gonna, part of your life now is changing because you're gonna be thinking about things in a different way. And like you said, doesn't mean you're gonna need to go out and buy, you know, start an organization, but you're going to think about how you're raising your kids, the books you're buying for them, who, you know, the store, the movies you're watching, the, the, the whatever, how you communicate with people on the street, you know, how you make people aware of things. I mean, there's a whole litany of, of ways to get involved and be, yeah. and be active. And um, 
Well, and, you know, it's hard. People were, were bubbleized more than ever now. You know, I used yeah. to think it was just the liberals who were bubbleized, but it's, we're all bubbleized now from the internet, from listening to what we want to listen to and what we want to hear. And, you know, I mean, it's like we talked about at the beginning, the, the, the level of problems is just, you know, it's like, it can be, it can be deafening, um, but you really can't get overwhelmed and you pick what you, what, what seems manageable for you. And, and that's what you work on. And right there, you're putting energy into it to make change. So, you know, it's like looking at it as small little things and not feeling like you have to do it all at once because you've just realized that the last 400 years in this country are a lie, you know, and how big that was for so many people this summer. You know, I have a black mm -hmm. husband, so I, I have been involved in white privilege conversation for quite a long time. But, you know, if I didn't, mm -hmm. didn't, I would... I, I can't imagine how I would have been this summer. I would have been like, oh my God, I didn't realize any of this, you know? And I think that was for a lot of people. Um, so, well, you know, Aaron, what, what I, what I would love to say at this moment mm. to people who are listening or watching is what we're doing right now is we finished the semester and now we're doing what Misha and I are considering to be a think tank. We're taking a beat. We're speaking with companies we're trying to figure out how to grow, how to do the next semester, but we really aren't experts here. We don't believe we have, a, we have ideas and we have, you know, some proof of some beta success, but we want to hear from the people who are listening here about either their ideas or how they'd like to participate or what resources they have that we can connect with, that we can form alliances with. Um, we know that we will be looking for funding and some form of corporate sponsorship in order for this to be sustainable and to grow in semesters ahead. We also know we don't want to rush into it the way we rushed into the first one. So we're taking our time to learn from similar organizations and to make connections with the large corporations who say they want to participate as alliances with us. But to the filmmakers who are listening to this now, we are eager for you to engage us with either your ideas, your time, your alliances, your connections, um, not just to employ uh, our mentees, some of whom are not ready to be employed, but to engage them, to talk with them, to form those radical alliances that we're trying to create, but also to help guide us to grow as a very, very young nonprofit that is looking to be effective and not overzealous. So, so you did speak with Wendy, right? You guys connected with her? Or did, did, did both of you talk to Wendy? Yeah. yeah. So we the, the most interesting conversation we've had so far was with the um, Alliance of Media Culture, which is based in Atlanta, but has, they describe themselves as an umbrella organization that is, they're federally funded and they have many umbrella organizations such as RealWorks um, uh, that train kids or find kids who have an interest in filmmaking, art or culture and prepare them for the workplace. And what they proposed was that they create a beta semester with us, a pilot semester, they called it, to uh, use our mentor talk 
dine, uh, uh, format with their kids. And that's something we're considering. The, the pluses for that are they're federally funded. There's a lot more human resource support. We don't have that infrastructure. You know, we can't manage just between me and Mish day-to-day work practices between um, bringing a kid into an adult environment. Um, and the kids have some form of training and understanding of filmmaking. That's interesting to us. It, it's definitely on the table and we're, we're, we're continuing to explore it. I think Mish and I, and I don't wanna speak for you Mish to so tell me what you think, but my initial reaction was, okay, but I know it's a lot harder to do what we're doing, but my whole thing was actually targeting kids who didn't have access to some of those organizations that prepared them to be successful workers, filmmakers, artists. I was more interested in talking with however difficult the kids who were being outright ignored were in failing schools and had no shot of this conduit. So it's something we're considering, but it's one of the obstacles that we're finding. You know, where best to spend our energy and resources? Do we do we piggyback on top of federal funding and someone else's structure, or do we continue the hard fight of uh, a structureless, unfunded, least represented part of society? That is a great distillation, and I think it again, speaks to a more global challenge if you're engaging in diversity work of creaming, right? Um, And so in education, creaming is basically when you take the top of the class and you give them all the opportunities. And it makes sense because these people in theory in a meritocracy where everybody's on a level playing field and everybody has the same amount of opportunities, which we know is false. But in theory, in a meritocracy, people who are already doing well should get more opportunities because they'll do well again. But the problem with that is that one, if you are looking for black people at predominantly white institutions, you're, you know, you're hustling backwards already, right? You're hustling backwards. Yeah, sure, there's a handful. I graduated from schools like that. I'm not saying that we don't exist, but that is not where the bulk of black, Hispanic, young people, young, talented, undiscovered, talented people are gonna be. The people who end up in those spaces oftentimes have had opportunities extended to them already. Um, and so I think the, the challenge with really focusing on hard to reach vulnerable populations is that they're hard to reach. You know, It's not as simple as getting college students who are already on the trajectory to success and giving them an extra push. Though I do think that there's a space for that and those people shouldn't be ignored. But I think that it's challenging in different ways to find someone who's not in college who's not um, you know, in a formal job training program and to say, hey, you've got a good eye. Why don't you try this? Um, and so I think for me, where I started my career as an educator and where I think Ethan and I met was really in this place that a lot of people would describe as hopeless. There was, it was not the place where recruiters are going to find the next big talent yet we found incredibly talented people in that same place. And so I think as we continue to expand, finding a way to really centralize, center the most marginalized within black communities and not go for black people from the suburbs, black people who are at Ivy League institutions, black people or Hispanic people who have already 
cleared a significant amount of hurdles. But going to those places where everyone else is kind of like, oh yeah, those guys, don't worry about them. They, they got C's in high school. And saying, well, let's see what you can do with those C's. Um, I think that that's going to be the real challenge. And I think that that's also going to be the real opportunity because once we can move you know, a larger group into the opportunity zone, I think it will change things for everyone up and down the ladder. Right. But also, just to be clear, we're not trying to help them make their first short film or write their first script. There's lots of organizations that are doing that. And I applaud yes. them. But that's Ghetto what film school. we are interested in doing. There are something like 2,500 short films submitted to the Sundance Film Festival every year. 9,000 Nine, 9, this year. Oh my God. Well, 9,000? You know, when I applied. Um, we're not... I, 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 I'm not saying that the next great filmmaker is not at one of these high schools, but what we're focused on is a little bit more immediate and a little bit more granular, which is ostensibly less sexy, but there are lots of carpenters and lots of grips and lots of electrics on our film sets who make our industry go round, who have pension and welfare, sustainable incomes and very, very different lives than our kids do. And that's where we are interested in connecting the dots a little bit less than encouraging the next great director who even among the most privileged class of people statistically has a very unlikely trajectory. Um, have you talked to Wendy at all about doing it the way you guys want to do it by finding people that you're putting together and then that she helps support that? We, ha we have, it's an, it, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, what she's, because they have an umbrella organization, she would put us in touch with local organizations proximate to our mentees location and introduce them to those programs. Mish and I will be discussing that with her on our next call. Misha, I know you know, I guess we both feel skeptical that some of our kids will be able to engage in some of those programs, but it is absolutely not only a possibility, but I, I am sure some of our kids can engage in those programs. Um, yeah. Where, yeah. Go ahead, finish what you're saying. I, I was just gonna say, we're, we're, we wanted, we, when we started this podcast, we wanted to make sure we came across to everyone listening as two people who don't have the answers yet, don't have a plan yet, are very much in a think tank transition and are, are moving with a lot of humility. So we still have a lot of information to learn and way more questions to ask than answer. Absolutely. And has uh, Wendy introduced you to Kimberlyn yet, Bolton? We haven't been able to connect yet, but it's on okay. the book. Yeah, okay, because we're doing a talk with them soon with Wendy, Kimberlyn, and uh, Keisha Cameron is going to um, moderate it. But but Kimberlyn is doing something similar to you guys in Atlanta. Um, they do have the money from uh, the tax credit in Georgia that's mm. been helping, but the but the pipeline to get it there is what Wendy has kind of been helping mm -hmm. her with though. So, but she be, she, you guys should talk to her at some point because they're, they're finding the way she's been doing it the same as 15 year olds, 16 year olds. 
and trying to find who's the next accountant, you know, on this film or like who's interested in math, who's interested in this, but very similar to what, what you guys are thinking. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about how these, these sorts of established organizations, you know, popping up in, in these cities mm -hmm. that have film communities, obviously, you know, New, New York and LA being the most, the biggest ones, you know, um, yeah. but, but it's interesting. And it's also really yeah. interesting hearing you guys talk because, you know, this is kind of the reason we started film Roundtable was, you know, having this collective pause from COVID and really feeling like so many people were going to have a story to tell after this experience. Mm -hmm. And um, everyone has a smartphone, even in the most underserved communities in Bangladesh, you know, people have smartphones and it's much easier to film something on your phone than it is to maybe start to try to write your story or paint a painting or whatnot. And so we really wanted to have these talks to, to open up to people that like, there are lots of ways you can a get your medicine out for yourself of like, you know, talking about what's happening for you, but B, you know, how you can work in this, in this industry, being a grip, or maybe you're really good at building things and you could be a set, you know, this very similar trajectory, which I love so much that you guys are taking this on another route you know for us we're, we reach out to like there's like 97 countries people come from to listen to the film roundtable and you know just introducing them to things of like you know what you know what does it i mean everything you know just really people not people not even really knowing what a cinematographer is you know i mean yeah. just you know straight across. i learned that this year <laughs> yeah well yeah. actually mish you taught me that we shouldn't assume people know what a pa is yeah, you know, our kids didn't know what a production assistant was. Um, another thing to the people who are listening is we're looking for, we, we haven't had the bandwidth to do this yet. It's on our list, but we want SketchUp, Photoshop, uh, the Adobe Suites, Rhino. We want those companies to give our kids free software. That's gonna change their lives in some ways faster and more effectively than a hundred mentor talks. If a kid has access to Photoshop or SketchUp and becomes proficient in it, I have a shot of getting them into the union. I certainly can hire them tomorrow. Um, even you know, presentations like InDesign or Keynote are gonna change some of these kids' lives. I know that we can facilitate that. We just haven't had the bandwidth yet to do it just between the two of us. And, I know that the fastest advances I've seen on my crews for diversity are within graphic design, visual effects, um, uh, and, the, and, and, and sort of the more digital craftsmen, because that's where you can bridge the gap if you know and understand the software and have access to it. Absolutely. And I mean, I think about, you know, young people who are incredible TikTokers, some of our young people who are incredible YouTubers. And I think about, you know, if we give you the right set of tools, you could, you know, you could run for miles with it. But a lot of times they're, it's a completely DIY, like it's self-taught, no actual formal, um, uh, software being used, you know, it's just like whatever tutorials they see and free trial they get for a week. And what would it look like if we gave young people the opportunity to really develop and hone their technical skills? What would that look like for 
the stories that they would tell. And I think that that is a really, really promising, and I just want to double down on it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those opportunities, if you can extend them, extend them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes, that feels really, really right, you know, to get that message out for people to, to think about those sort of opportunities um, to help. Um, what, so you guys are taking a little bit of just time right now to kind of incubate and think about, think about things. So what are the men, the mentees doing right now that you just had in the beta semester? Are they? Um, so that's a great question. Some yeah. of them actually got their first jobs and yeah. we were able to help facilitate that. So we've had a couple PAs, um, I'm sorry, not PAs, a couple mentees go on to PA with um, actually HBO, who's working on a project that I'm pretty sure I can't discuss. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, we've also had a couple of our mentees take on internships with production companies doing script coverage who are interested in, you know, the uh, writing aspect of it. But a lot of our mentees are still just doing the day-to-day -day struggle of survival. You know, they're working on their craft, they're making YouTube videos, they're connecting with their mentors via email. Um, and, you know, we check we in periodically. Mention, uh, we should mention killer films because they've been great. We, we, have, yes. we have candidates of killer films. This week we spoke with Fox Searchlight. Next week we're speaking with Disney. Um, the week after this, Hulu. So it, it's, it seems like there's going going to be a lot of facilitating of entry-level positions, which is really exciting. Um, but we just felt like we needed a moment before we started engaging on a weekly basis, um, both out of respect to our mentees and our mentors and wanting to be, you know, more effective and more organized and, and maybe funded um, exactly. to be able to provide, you know, the right platform. Um, to that end, uh, I, I'd, I'm happy to post our email addresses or an email that we can create to people who are listening here and want to participate as mentors, fundraisers, um, and or people who have ideas or alliances that they want to connect us with. I think that's one of the most valuable things about doing a podcast like this and starting to speak about how we're trying to do something, but we don't know all the answers and be open to the community that we're a part of to, to have a voice in it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we can put that information in, you know, our email blast that goes out when the Instagram goes out and when the podcast itself goes out. So that could be an right. all, we'll, we'll just sidebar about that. Um, but I also think it's important and really, um, you know, should be honored that you guys are taking the space to really think about this because again, you know, wanting to have that, like you both have achieved a lot in your lives and wanting to like really do this, you obviously feel passionate about it, but it does take time to really develop these sorts of ideas. And, you know, these they're very creative, you know, and they take a lot of energy. And you really, it's important to like take space to really think about what was working, what isn't working. Um, also, it takes time. You're just trying to place your your mentees also in jobs. Yeah. Like they ask, you know, I mean, I would imagine the whole cycle for your first beta semester would take at least a year, right? Like by the time you're up and 
running again because you just want to make sure that you're <laughs> you're doing what you should be doing. Remember when we said we'll take five we'll take five weeks and then we'll start yeah. again. <laughs> the plan was to start again in February. <laughs> yeah. I am really grateful that Ethan has been such a strong advocate to really do this well. And I think sometimes well means slow. And so I, I do wanna like say like, absolutely start immediately, but starting immediately doesn't mean going fast per se, you know? Don't rush past steps, but get started in whatever capacity it is. What we're doing right now, the think tank stage, that's essential to building a program that serves the needs of these young people and that honors the time of the mentors who are contributing it. So it's not like it's like, oh, you know, we're just gonna chill for a little bit. We're still working. The work just looks different as it progresses. And so I think that anyone who's interested in starting this type of thing, yes, start immediately, but start immediately doesn't necessarily mean go fast. Yeah, Hurry up and go slow. Uh... Exactly. Filmmakers and type A personalities and corporate strategists have a very different sense of tempo uh, mm. and, and success. I've had to fight that here too. When I first started working in this nonprofit sector, I was appalled by the glacial pace. Um, and Mish has been instrumental in explaining how the nuances and the intricacies of this require that space. You need to move at a much slower pace than the capitalist culture of your day job informs you to. Right. This is this is some different shit. Well, which Absolutely. is which is good because we need to reprogram ourselves from living in that sort of environment to begin with. And the film business is the worst culprit. It's like hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, and wait. You know, and yeah. like you and and it's good to not nurture that in this sort of situation, which yeah. requires a lot of you know, sensitivity and thought and caring and love and all of those things. Yes. And I do feel like there are many, many, many people in our business that are those people that are thoughtful, caring, sensitive, you know, who really want to be doing more in their lives to give back because really in the film business, we're not necessarily of service. You know, it's, I mean, that's why I've left the film business because I don't, you know, I, I, I want to be of service more fully. And I think people in the film business want to as well. And I think this program and, and hopefully others like it, people will be inspired to do, do similar stuff will be some, be a way that they can bring that into their lives. And so that said, it's very important what you guys are doing, figuring it out the best way to do it. So you're not going to run out of fuel for yourselves, you right. know, and yeah and that you're pacing yourselves. So I think that's, it, it's, it's really beautiful. And I commend you both. Like it's a great, it's a big I, project. I, I struggle with feeling like we're not doing enough every day. So every day. Always easy on uh, yourself. You are mm -hmm. doing the best you can with what you can right now. Exactly. We're not, there's a lot that needs to change. So much needs to change in the world. You know, again, it's just slowly, slowly chipping away, you know, to make this place a better, you know, to make it a better world for, for who comes after you, you know, the, your, your, your relations to be, or, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, and the films will be better. The stories will be oh more God, nuanced. Better. Yes. Yeah. Richer. 
much richer, yeah. much realer, you know, I mean, yeah. really connect and connecting us all. In also a tired of that, way. that same European perspective that dominated so many stories. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. we're so disconnected right now as, as humans, you know, and that's not the way we were. I mean, just as Mish was saying, you know, with your with your circles, like that's how we communed. We got gathered in, in circle and, and shared, you know, and, and yes. talked and worked things out. We do that at my house. The four of us mm. sit down, we have a talking stick. Everybody gets a time. I love it. People are listened and heard and not being interrupted, you know, and and the kids like it. Um, and I think that's a great, you know, it's a great way. I love that you guys are holding your space like that. It's really beautiful. And it is how, where we all came from. I just think yes. that, um, especially if you're from like colonizing white ancestors, it was a very long time ago that we practiced mm -hmm. that sort of, reverence you know and and um and it's and it's there it's in our dna it's just we need to come back to those kind of space mm -hmm. and i think i would like i do a lot of ancestral work and i was reading something recently and it is um i think humans in general homo, sap homo sapiens we're like 99.597 the same percent the same so like you know, Ethan, you and Mish are not that different from one another, you know, and we're not that, we're not that different from Trump, which is, uh, makes me want a moment just saying that, but, you know, we're all very connected and um, similar, you know, uh, and I think that's an interesting thing. I thought about that when you were talking about your breaking the ice points uh, in your circle, um, just to make people feel comfortable, because we forget how so much has happened and over history we've become so separate but we're really so so the same you know <laughs> yeah we're irrevocably connected exactly. we have some great we've had some great answers to questions <laughs> yeah. uh, i will say that my favorite is what's your favorite type of french fry that one went every direction that you can imagine Ethan like started off with poutine and I was like, okay, this is gonna yeah. be crazy. Yeah. Or what's your two favorite movies? And one of the kids said, uh, Fast and the Furious and uh Fast and the Furious too. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, I uh I am I am personally I'm really excited to see how people uh, respond to something like this and, and, and if people reach out and if they have uh, interests and ideas and perspectives because Misha and I are in such a curious place right now and by, by curious I mean we are curious to hear other people's perspectives we, we really did this we flew by the seat of our pants we did it and now we want to do it again much more informed and, and much more wise yeah absolutely and, you know, I would love to have you guys back on with maybe two of your mentees yeah. and we could do a conversation, you know, the four of you could do a conversation and I think that would be great. And I don't even think you need a moderator. You just like, we could be there, but you can just have a conversation and ask questions yourself to the mentees. I think that would be really great. Oh, they would love that. Yeah. So we should plan that and have it as the part B to this. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about today that maybe 
got missed or something important? I'm just so grateful for what you do. And, and I'm so, uh, I'm really honored to have been included. Thank you for reaching oh, out to us. It, was not, you it, was, it wasn't something I had considered. Um, and, and, I, and I feel really uh, just thrilled to, to be part of this conversation and, and with your listeners. Yeah, me too. I mean, we feel, I mean, I'm, this is what we're wanting to be about. This is what we're wanting to support, you know, in, in these conversations is to kind of open up people's views on, on, to learn things, you know, something outside of like, how do you write a script? You know, the technical aspect yeah. doesn't interest us. It's like, how do we connect better in this art format, you know, as, as a community, you know, and, and how do we, how do we open up? How do we, how do we just open it up for people? You know, I mean, this is, you know, film businesses is just one example of, of systemic racism and white privilege. And it's like, all right, like, what can we do to, to try to, to try to make things more available to people, you know? Um, so we really appreciate what you're doing and I really look forward to you guys coming back on. We'll, yeah. we'll set that up. Mish, do you have, do you want to say something? Um, yeah, I think I'm going to end with a quote. And this is one I always go back to. It's Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. uh, when you learn, teach. When you get, give. Mm. It's that simple. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. Have a good one. Yeah, have a great yeah. Saturday, you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. <laughs>